Well, a HELOC is basically, it's a line of credit against real estate. So think of a mortgage that is not just a lien of principal and interest that you have to pay back over time. You have the terms as you have to pay back over time, but it's treated as a line of credit, like a credit card. It's basically if somebody says, I'm going to give you a credit card for a a more a deed of trust on your house for 90% of the value and you say okay and you can swipe that card when you want and you and you just pay the bill when when you swipe the card for whatever interest you use so if i pull 20 grand out of it to buy a car i'm only paying interest on that 20 grand so that's another great way to finance yourself welcome to the investing rn podcast your number one resource for nurses and healthcare professionals who want to take control of their financial well-being and build a life of abundance and freedom hosted by Josh Condado and Colin Davis Each week, we bring you insightful interviews with successful nurses, entrepreneurs, and experts in the field. Together, we'll explore the world of investing, uncover strategies to overcome challenges, and inspire you to create a thriving portfolio. Whether you're a new nurse, just starting out, or a seasoned veteran, Investing RN is here to equip you with the knowledge, tools, and inspiration you need to invest your time, money, and relationships wisely. All right, well, welcome to the Investing RN podcast. Today, we're joined by Greg Fariselli. Uh, out of Florida, but investing in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, doing syndications, land development, all kinds of different things we're going to get into today. Um, this will be exciting for us because there's uh, land development is something we have not talked about, something we're interested in personally. And so we're looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know your beginnings in business and work and, and where your career started initially? Yeah. Yeah, I, I could. Uh, I've been in the business for eight years. Um, Nashville-based real estate professional started in Nashville. That's where I got my license. That's where I lived at the time. And now I'm based in St. Pete, Florida, because I got married recently. We love it here. And it's zero degrees there while it's 70 degrees here. I'll take that anytime. Um, I've been developing land with a company that I own, a partner in it called Rhythm Development. I'm a broker at Hive Nashville, and then also I'm licensed in Florida at Dalton Wade. Um, I have Stacked University, where I teach students how to become real estate investors. Stacked Capital is a capital company that we invest in syndications. And that's basically it. So past eight years, started as an agent, then kind of transitioned, step out of time into different things. Okay. What, what was your intro because I, I assume you didn't like come right out of college or right out of high school um and just like hey i'm an entrepreneur i'm gonna do this i'm gonna start by getting a real, oh, my real estate man. license i guess so let's go back to, so what led oh, to that's that such a great question let's go back to 2008 when i thought it was a great idea to buy a house <laughs> okay in florida because that's where i lived a different part had to do a short sale like six months or a year later wasn't able to buy any property and that's when i moved to nashville in 2009 i'm just like i'm out of here 2015 rolls around. I'm like, I can't retire from working in restaurants and playing music and doing all this stuff. I was like, I need some, I need something else. Right. So I got my real estate license in 2015. And then from there, um, I started wholesaling pretty much right away with a company in Nashville that was not, not doing things in a way that I continue to do them. So once I exited that and got into a better, environment. It really took off to a lot of different things from there. This episode is sponsored by All Day Investments. If you would like to get your start in real estate investing, but don't want to deal with toilets or tenants, we have several new opportunities that might interest you. Head over to alldayinvestments.co forward slash invest 
or follow the link in our show notes to book a call with our team. You said you started off with wholesaling after getting your license. Did you, I know I've heard different things like in some states you need your license. So did you get your license to wholesale or to actually? No. Okay. I honestly didn't know I was wholesaling. I didn't really know. I just was doing what, what I was told to do and taught on this team. Um, so it was a lot of it was a mixture of listings, buyers, and some wholesales. And the wholesales were, I was getting a network of a lot of people that wanted these deals. So every time I even find like a lead on Facebook or something like random, like I was able to sell it. So then I figured out, we were figuring out some leads that we got some land. And I got a call from a guy one day who's like, Hey, I got this property. It's like, we can do, I think it was 14 units on it. And I want like 175. I was like, wow, that's cool. This is back in probably 20, what, 2016 maybe. And then we had the deal. And then he told me that they had title issues. It's going to take about a year to clear up that he'd call me back. And the dude actually called me back. And I ended up buying the deal. So I was like, I can pay you $175,000. I can write you a contract and I can assign to somebody else. I can list it for you as an agent. I don't care how you want to handle it. He's like, I don't care how you handle it. I was like, well, then I'm going to give you a contract and I'm going to try to wholesale. If not, I'll turn it into a listing. He's like, perfect. So I sent it out to my list and I got a, a random call from someone that wanted to, was interested in the property. I said, well, cool. Are you a builder? What do you do? He had a couple properties already in Nashville. So he's kind of familiar with it. And he asked me how much I wanted for. I was like, well, that depends. I was like, either you can give me the 12 backend listings at this price, or you can buy me out at this price. So he decided to keep me in the deal. And then that's how that kind of started. So you mentioned short sale earlier. I don't think that term's come up on here. Well, yet. That's a good thing. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to say, it's not usually associated with a good situation. So what, what exactly is that? So a short sale is when you basically the bank is going to agree for you to settle on a different loan amount that you went under the mortgage agreement with. So if you had a loan for 200 grand and like you short sold it to somebody for 60, the bank agrees to let you off the hook on that. Usually it hurts your credit for six or seven years. The only advantage on the flip side of that is that that little period between not paying their payments and bank notifications is a great opportunity to be able to sub to those deals before they get to a short sale and they save. So you can rent them back to the people or just buy the houses on a, on a sub to that little time period. It's usually only a month that these people you know, haven't paid and it hasn't gotten recorded yet. Cause once the bank gets a hold of it, then you have to go through the short sale process. So this is that little time period where the seller, the owner still has the control of the property. Okay. Do you think that's going to be the case coming up pretty soon? I know, I know inflation kind of helped out and you didn't really need any of those any the last 10 years. The only distress that I see are syndicators and large funds that bought on bridge debt and did not account for the market, the new market conditions and are not able to refi that bridge debt. So like you'll see like these big apartment buildings that are going under foreclosure and stuff because they can't, I mean, their business plan was to refi the bridge debt. Well, the problem is they couldn't refi. So they had to give back to the banks. So everybody lost their money. So that's why in a syndication, I would never invest on a syndication if they were doing it on permanent debt or not on permanent debt. So if they're, 
doing it on the temporary debt, the bridge debt. If I understand that I'm only going to be in it for six months and I have maybe a more a different buyer profile, I would do it. But other than that, I wouldn't do it with permanent, only with permanent debt. I want to be the investor on the permanent debt. So I could sell it and refine and I'll, you know, so that was just learned through that. <laughs> yeah. When I just heard of this, I think, was it Houston or Dallas somewhere yeah. in Texas? Another five, $500 million yeah. property. Just We probably heard the same one. Yeah. I'm sure there's other ones too. There's even there. Yeah. I've heard of quite a few actually. And I'm getting calls from lenders like, hey, I got this loan coming due. Are you looking to buy something? Like I'm getting leads to buy property from lenders that know me that are um, having distressed borrowers, which is a fantastic lead source. That I think that's something we keep hearing is like, you know, there's there's a lot of doom and gloom being kind of like talked of in in the real estate world. But then we hear from people like you that it's like, hey, there's some big opportunities coming up. So what are you guys doing to prepare for that? So I guess, you know, I almost want to say the biggest thing is I just, I've, I know that there's opportunities and I just choose to believe that there's opportunities. So I, I see them. So just like I can choose to not see opportunities, I'm not going to see any opportunities. And I go back and forth through phases of my career where I just, maybe I just block opportunities out. Like we all go through that, you know? So how do we mitigate that? Well, you know, is I, I like to be at, I can either like to have non-recourse debt where I don't have to sign personal guarantees is one way. Making sure that I have, you know, at least 12 months of mortgage payments and repairs for all of my rental properties and all of my apartments, all of my mortgage payments, putting a HELOC on my primary residence to pay down so I'm not paying a payment. I only do it, I only will do it if I already have paid the cash for it. I'm not the one, I don't do it on the note. I'll pay cash and refi out. So that that 90% will become basically my emergency fund bank account. So that's another layer. And then you can get deeper than that too with like life insurance and different types of credit. But I, you know, I like to go, I like people like to build up. Like that's great. You want to build your wealth up. I like to also build my wealth down. I like to make my foundations more and more levels because the more foundation you have, the stronger you are to go up when it's time. You know, if you go only up, then you have nothing like one little mistake. It could just bottom you out. So what, what can you talk about that a little bit more? What do you mean by building down as opposed to building? Well, up? I guess like, all right. So for instance, let's pretend I have a balloon payment coming up. It's 500 grand, right? The market sucks. I can't refinance it. So what do I have to do? I have to sell it or dump it and give it back to the bank. Well, since I now have this layer of these HELOCs, I could take money out of my HELOC and I could pay it down. Layer one would be just using cash, right? Available liquid cash. Let's say I don't want to use that. I, my HELOC is my next level. So I can pull out of my HELOC to pay that off. If I don't want to do that, my life insurance policy is underneath that layer to be able to do the same thing. So it's, I'm mitigating my own risk by lever, not lever, not over leveraging everything, but leveraging certain things in certain ways, right? I wouldn't normally put a 90% mortgage on my house unless I had access to that 90%. So I'm really only in my house for 10% with no payment because I paid it all back unless I need it. Okay. Makes sense. All right. So you, so you mentioned HELOC and I know that's a strategy that you like to, you like to tell new newbies, I guess. Um, so what exactly is a HELOC and then how can you use that to get started in your investments? Yeah, great question. Well, a HELOC is basically, it's a line of credit against real estate. So think of a mortgage that is, not just a lien of principal and interest that you have to pay back over time. 
you have the terms as you have to pay it back over time, but it's treated as a line of credit, like a credit card. It's basically if somebody says, I'm going to give you a credit card for a, a more a deed of trust on your house for 90% of the value and you say, okay, and you can swipe that card when you want and you, and you just pay the bill when, when you swipe the card for whatever interest you use. So if I pull 20 grand out of it to buy a car, I'm only paying interest on that 20 grand. So that's another great way to finance yourself because you're actually also writing off all of the interest and stuff like that too. And then, you know, it's just like another layer. It's like a lot of people use different funds to be able to do that. So they kind of pay themselves in one way, but they're paying, they're not paying a bank. They're still paying interest, but it goes back to them. Yeah. Do you have, so my understanding is that it has to be your primary residence. Can you do this on multiple houses that you, that you own? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can, you just have to find someone to do that. I have, so I had one on a primary residence. So then I just moved out of that, made it a rental and bought another primary with cash, did the same thing. And then I did it on uh, one of my rentals and then I did it actually on a piece of land. Hmm. So some of these, it's a commercial okay. product, right? You may only get 50, 60%, but you, you still get 50, 60%, right? Cause you're paying cash for these anyway. So okay. I have one. So basically I have like, yeah, a couple of few houses, couple, couple rentals, a primary and land right now are the four. Interesting. I, this is the first time I've heard of land. Yeah, it's not something that like you can go to a bank and say, hey, will you do a HELOC? It's like, hey, we've done all these deals together. Is it cool if I, and they're like, usually like, yes. You know, a bank that you have okay. a good relationship with, that you have a lot of deposit, which is a big key. Like how much money you have at that bank was also helps like you be able to get to do those creative type of things for sure. And I think you were asking me before, like, how do you use a HELOC to get started? You know, yes. so... You want to look at your your house. Let's just pretend that you it's a five hundred thousand. You paid three hundred thousand dollars for this house. It's worth five hundred, right? You've owned it for five years. You owe two hundred on it. So what you can do is you can refinance it, right? You could get a loan for the eighty percent of the value for four hundred thousand cash out on that. That's just a normal refinance, and then you have to pay on the the four hundred thousand dollar note by taking your equity out. Well, you can also do that in a line of credit where you don't do an actual refinance, but you do into a HELOC. So the advantages are like, you don't, you're only paying interest only, you're only paying on the balance and you can access it whenever you want. So if you were to do a refinance and you don't have any, and you want to take the equity, then you have to pay the payment. So if you buy a house with cash or you use some of that equity, cause you're going to get some of it back, you're going to cash it back. So you're going to actually get the money. You don't have to pay a payment on it, but you have it in hand. So now you have, it's like your mortgage, you can't access, you pay your principal down every year. You can't access that principal, right? But all the principal, you put it on the HELOC every month, you can access it whenever you want. It's just your payment goes up because you pay more interest. So if you need a down payment for something or like, wow, this deal is awesome. I, I need to throw, you know, a hundred grand into this real quick. I don't have, I don't have time to get approvals and I don't need, I have an under, whatever. You just write your check, self a check and you do that. I did that and I did that on a loan actually. I, I took from my HELOC and lent on it to get the arbitrage in between the interest rates and the points. Nice. Yeah. So I, I know we talked about this in one of our one of our first couple episodes, is that we, that's how we got started yeah. to use HELOC for, for my primary residence. This is such a great and strategy. Everybody should do it. Everybody. It worked out great. And I, I do know of some other people that also had HELOCs, but then they got a little bit scared because interest rates were yep. going up and and so what do you tell people like interest rates are going up? You just have to make a higher interest or you well, have to 
generate more money than you're paying basically. And, and it's as simple as that. Or what do you So you're going to have to plan. So if the bank tells you at your payment is excess of a percent, run your numbers, run your numbers on that 10% and see if you're comfortable with that payment. And that's just assuming you make no money, like your income doesn't increase and all these different things. Right. But there's also something else you can do is um, you can kind of chase introductory rates. Like a lot of these banks will have like 2.9 for six months or 5% for the first year. So you do 5% and month 10 rolls around, you start trying to find another one. Uh, and then you, so a lot of people will do that. <laughs> the uh, interest rate, it takes a lot of work, but they'll, they'll chase those interest rate, the intros. And um, some people will do that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just refinancing them out to a mortgage that you're comfortable with is another way. You're still getting your money back out. You just can't access it again. Yeah. And you don't have to, you don't have to get a HELOC from the same bank where your where your first mortgage. No, is. you actually probably will is not. They probably, yeah. They're not going to read. They probably wouldn't do that because you got to remember the bank doesn't really want to do it. That's why nobody really knows about it. So for instance, like the closing costs are usually like five hundred to a thousand dollars. You're not paying two points and lender fees and all that. You'll have to pay for the appraisal and your transfer tax, but you're looking at like two grand of closing costs instead of ten or fifteen on like a four hundred thousand dollar purchase. So banks don't make any money off of it. The banks, and then when I put the money back in at the day it funds, they don't make any interest off it either, right? But they still have the value of the note. So the, the very least, they have the value of the note for when they sell their portfolios and notes. It goes along with it. So that's kind of like a way to almost beat the bank. You know, it's like I have all their money. I had they have the lien grade. They could have it, and you know, and these primary residence HELOCs are. 30 year loans too. So yeah. if your house just appreciates in value, just keep, keep doing it. Refine, refine again, get more money every five, 10 years, depending on how long you live there. So, so prior to getting into real estate, you mentioned doing like playing music and, um, and working in restaurants. We've with the nursing, like there's been some talk of like, just even just like being familiar with like terms, like in, in the medical field and like learning the terms in real estate, like what, what did you uh, kind of experience as you started uh, that process of learning this new lingo and all these different tactics? Was there something that you felt set you up for this? Um, I think my ability to learn things sets me up for it because when I want to know something, I don't sit there and Google every little thing. I find somebody that I know that's done something like this before and I ask them a couple questions. And then I ask somebody else. 90% of the knowledge that I've learned is throughout my, the deals that I do and the people that I work with. I don't, I don't, you're telling me about terms. I don't even know if I know all these terms. <laughs> I know how to get these things done. I know the questions to ask, but I don't know. You know, I flunked out of college. I didn't never took any type of financing classes. I just learned from one deal to the next deal to the next deal. And then just taking some risk and ask, saying some things and people actually saying yes. So like, Hey, you can buy me out of this deal. I can charge you a ridiculous amount. People have said yes. Right. So sometimes it's just taking some risk and trying different things, but I have yeah. people in my network and on my team that specialize in different things that I don't have to, to necessarily learn. Cause I don't, I don't want to have to know everything because things change too much to sit and learn so much information. So you can sit and learn about taxes all day and become an expert in 2023, but once 2024 hits around, you got to learn everything again. Yeah. So what, like, I just need to know how to get through the deals I have in front of me. And I know how to say the right things to the sellers and the buyers to make a deal happen. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and time in the game and, is, and time is in the game. you you kind of said that you've said that, um, well, you said it takes work to get your HELOC and you've mentioned a few things already just in this interview is, is the more that you do things, the more time that you have in there, the more deals you do with a single bank, they're willing to get more creative. Yep. And we, we experienced that too. Um, like our first deal, I went around to a bunch of different banks and they're like, no, this is what we offer. Take it yep. or leave it. But then after we did like three, four or five deals, then they're like, okay, yeah, I think we could do this for you. Or I think, I think we can work with you on this. Yeah. I, that, I mean, that was, that was tough for me too. I used to make, I made like a resume and I gave them to banks. I'm like, here's three lenders that I have loans on. Call them to see if I've ever been laid out of payment. And I give them my whole profile, <laughs> like my assets, like how much I make. I'm like, I, you know, I've never missed these payments and believe it or not, they eat that up. Yeah. Because you think that you're talking to this bank and this president, but it's really just a committee of people that look at you and say, okay, he's, he's in our risk profile. We can take a chance. You know, it's really, it's really such a people game that people don't realize. Like, cause if we don't, I don't like to use it's that many institutional banks. Of course I have to use Chase and Wells Fargo and stuff like that, unfortunately, but those aren't where I'm really getting my relationships. My relationships are from those community bank that I, you know, I send a text to, to get a wire set up, you know, like they're, I can mail them a check in the mail and they can deposit for me to avoid a fee. You know, like they're, they have those, it's such a people relationship game in the, in the banking world. For sure. As you're looking for mentors or when you were starting out, um, you know, I always hear people talking about bringing value to somebody. So what, what was your kind of tactic in doing that? Yeah. Great question. So one thing I've always been good at is acquisition without the, there's, there's value in the deal, no matter what position you're in, the values in the deal. So I figured if I can just bring deals, I'll find people and then I'll find money. So really it's just like bringing deals to enough people and understanding how they buy and what their criteria is, banks criteria and stuff like that is, is probably the best way to, that I've done. It's just by bringing something of value to somebody and just figuring out how they do it. Whether you just kind of watch the process with them, see what they do, or you just talk to them. Like I'm not afraid to ask questions. Like, Everybody thinks that as a real estate agent, you should be the one that knows everything about real estate. And like, I'm a, you're my client. So I'm going to tell you everything about real estate. I don't want to know everything. So I'm like, so what do you mean? Why do you run your numbers that way? I've never seen that before. Can you tell me more about that? Why do you, why do you use that person? You know, why do you do these certain things? So, because you can know this information, but without real life application, it just, it just goes to the wayside. It doesn't go anywhere. Because every every area, let's say real estate is so different. The regulations, the, t the terrain, everything is just so different that it's just you have to learn how to work those real life situations in the areas and the experts in those areas that work those type of deals. Yeah, yeah. So your your first step, it sounds like, was learning how to learn find how deals. to find deals. But so that that sounds that sounds pretty difficult though. Like, how did you how did you learn to find deals? Because I mean, you could take this one deal and. As a newbie, you're like, oh, it's a great deal. And then you take it to someone who knows what they're doing. They're like, no, this is right. But that's but so then now you, I know figure it out? <laughs> that that deal is terrible. And now I'm going to say, why is it terrible? And I'm going to change my criteria okay. a little bit. I can't tell you how many email blasts I just throw out a ridiculous number just to see what people say. Like, I, I, that's just a normal <laughs> thing that we do. Like, what part of our process is when we're doing entitlements is to list it for double market value. I can't 75% of the time we've gotten way more than we thought for any of a lot of these deals that happens. It could be somebody next door that needs to do an assemblage. It could be, you know, because property around each other is, is worth more in a certain area. So like your neighbors are like your best bet to like sell out of these, all those big builders for the land and stuff like that. 
So it's easier to just, you know, be able to do it that way and throw numbers out there. Just, you know, if I have five people that are interested at this number, I, you know, it's like, cool. Who wants who wants to offer more? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll meet every, I mean, we used yeah. to meet people out at the property. I used to just, you know, a lot of people like to do a showing, like, oh, I'm just going to show this one person and then, then I'm going to let them go and sneak this other person. In. I just want everybody there at once. You know, so I want because tw- a I want to meet everybody. I want them to meet each other too because they could be making connections. And then I want to see who knows who too because you know back in those days when you're wholesaling, you got twenty people looking at a property. You know, five or six people or probably half the group. Oh, they just know each other, right? So now I'm learning, like it just maximizes like my networking instead of just going one to one. It's like one to many. So that's like what I. That's why I email blasts one to many, social media posts one to many, my coaching group coaching one to many. You know, well, and, and also I'm sure like bringing a bunch of people to the property all at once. If you brought one person, you can say, "Oh yeah, I have like five people," <laughs> yeah, and they're all like, "Oh sh- sure you do, sure you do." Oh yeah, I just love <laughs> waiting then, outside and just be like, here they come. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. And then everybody's scrambling. Oh, we need to offer more so we can actually get this. Oh done. yeah, yeah, that that's great. I love that strategy. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of no, noted. I'm right, right in the I mean, <laughs> market research is throwing darts out there, and it changes all the time. So you have to throw these darts out there all the time, and and the same. It, in the same way, it's like the market changes, but I want to see what they're going to, how they're going to react to this. You know, so when you're, when you have a good network of a couple thousand people that I'm sending a, a property to, or I go online to, I mean, I can get feedback on how to, you know, adjust it. So when I go to market or want highest and best use, I have all these opinions of what they could be compared to what I, what I think. And I don't want I don't care what I think. I want to know what everybody else wants because I'm trying to sell it to the, the, as many people as I can. Right. Yeah. So how do you use that strategy for buying deals? Um, Because I know when we were first starting, Colin, myself, everybody, super scared to throw out a lowball number because, you know, you don't want to hurt feelings. You don't want to deal with that. So how do you how do you tackle that on the acquisition side? So I don't mind throwing lowball offers out because I'll throw those numbers out and I'm very assumptive. It's like, I'm just going to assume that your house is in the absolute worst condition or it has. So I'm just going to throw a lowball number out there that gives me no risk. You know, so it's almost like an uneducated lowball number just to see what the what the reaction is. Because if they counter a price, then you know they're motivated. And if they don't counter a price, it's they're probably either don't really know who you are, they don't really trust you, or or they're not maybe they're just not motivated, right? So and it depends on the asset. Single family and if people, the longer people lived in a house, they, they want more money. And it's just like, you know, kind of gauging the motivation a little bit beforehand. It's like, you can kind of go in a different direction. Commercial and multifamily, for instance, that's tough. So the parameter I use on that is are, usually if someone wants to sell multifamily, they're happy to pass over their financials, right? Here's the rent roll, the P&L, the T12, and the people that don't, you know, or either have really bad books because, you know, the books have show the value of what, it, you know, their books create your value and they don't have really good books or they want way too much. So I usually try to get the financials and make a cap rate decision based upon that. So somebody wants 15 million for an apartment and I run the numbers and I think, you know, it's, it's 8 million. I'll send a formal LOI saying it's 8 million and, and here's why. And depending on their motivation, 
moves the needle in either direction. So when you're when you're throwing an offer like that, that's almost like half of what they're asking. Do you find that that's like kind of a one and done type thing if they don't counter, or will you then come back with another offer if you're actually interested in it? It depends on their motivation. Okay. Like if there's if they are countering at a high number because they have no reason, like they bought an apartment building, they live for free in one of the units and they have absolutely no care in the world to do anything else is going to be way more of probably somebody that I would have to wait out, right? Either to an estate or something. But and it also depends, is it privately owned by a person? Is it institutionalized? You know, do they have a committee? Is it a, is it a syndication where they have to go through a corporation or something? That all makes a difference too. And then, you know, you almost have to also be mindful of where you can get your lending and stuff on. So a lot of the multifamily, if I have a lender looking at it, they are the ones that really need all the financials because they're going to run their numbers on it. They're going to tell me whether I have a deal or not. If it's not in that 1.25 DSCR, you're not going to get the deal. So if a bank's not going to lend to me on it, they're probably not going to lend to anybody else. So Mr. Seller, if anybody's going to use financing, this is the numbers they really need to be on. I can get a little bit closer to your number if you want to hold the note for a while since you don't anything on it. Maybe I could pay you, but I, I, I can't get financing any more of this unless you want to hold maybe a down payment or hold back some of this and I could take less from So that now you have a really strong case to negotiate and it's a realistic case. It's either that way or not. You know, If somebody wants to overpay that, then let them. It's just probably not going to be me. Yeah, I think that's uh, something that has kind of worked in our favor that we didn't, you know, initially it's like you hear like the banks are the enemy almost. And it's like, now you're kind of like learning as they're, as they're underwriting this thing themselves, it's like, they want it to make sense for them because they don't want to lose money. So it's like, you can actually utilize them as, as an ally essentially, but just the creative piece that you're talking about, it's like, I think, you know, prior to investing in real estate, it was just like, okay, you either have to come up with like five, 10, 20% down to buy these things. But now it's like, we've done some creative deals and it's just like, like the world like opens and it's like a no just means like, okay, well, how else can we run this? And like, it's, it's just kind of a cool thing to experience and, and to go through and having done it ourselves, it's like, oh yeah, this actually happens. Like you hear it on bigger pockets or these things. And it's like, oh yeah, but they're like, they're doing something special or illegal or something. It's like, oh no, this actually <laughs> works. So it's, it's been a cool thing for us to experience. Yeah. And it sounds like you're going through the, I mean, you've, kind of work through every situation yeah. possible. Yeah. I mean, a negotiation is really just understanding the other person's point of view for that. Yeah. So some like for large land, when these people own these, that, that back and forth will go for sometimes a month or two easily over something that you're going to, they're thinking about and they're waiting on an answer. And then they finally come back to you and then you respond and then they sit and think, cause it's, you know, and, and it is about being creative. It's, it depends. And you know, it goes back to motivation. It's like this one little step is going to make either me less motivated or them me more motivated or they're more, more motivated. Right. So it's like, how do you kind of like inch to that one next direction? Right. And the longer it takes to negotiate a deal is usually the better deal. <laughs> so it's, you know, I get nervous when somebody just throws me like the exact terms and price I want immediately. I'm like, yeah, something's <laughs> up here. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good point. Um, so you've you've mentioned um, land, like what you're doing with land, um, and I know we're on on a bit of a time limit today. But all right, yeah, do you mind talking about what you're doing with all this land development and your land development 
in your perspective does is not what we imagine it was so yeah talk about that yeah so we we develop land so what i mean by developing land is we take the raw land and we turn it into the highest and best use it could be through city municipalities any type of encumbrances and then that is going to maybe yield a certain amount of pads building pads and then we sell that to a builder to take it and then they're going to develop the land meaning they're going to put in the underground infrastructure and then they're going to go vertical with the units and build the property and, and exit however they want to. So we're like in between the raw land and the builder. So the builders, they don't have time to spend a year and the resources to get these rezones the way they need to be. That's why you see a lot of these Goodall homes and Ryan homes and Lennar, like they buy their stamped pads, but they're buying them after entitlement. And usually somebody else is doing that entitlement before them. Or they're getting at a really steep discount and doing it themselves. But that's just not their model. That's a whole different division. It's like for a builder to be a developer, it's it's crazy. You know, it's usually not the yeah. same type of skill set, the same type of thing. So we, have to, we like to be in the middle. We don't take the risk. We don't. I mean, we actually close and buy these properties before, too. So we know that we're buying them at a good price, too. If we don't if we have to land bank it for years and years, we're OK with that. But, you know, a lot of these are to be able to exit to these builders and they take them and build them and. We move on to the next one. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable walking a deal with us? So, like, are you buying like farmland and yeah. and then you just like retitle it till like a builder can throw a fifty unit apartment building on it? Or if I could add to that, I was just going to say like, how are you underwriting land? Because that's you know underwriting is like a big thing for a lot of people, but it's easier when there's like a building or or cash flow or something. Right, but back to what I said before, it's I'm not a builder. I'm not going to be building it, so why do I even need to underwrite it? I just need to know the market value of price per pad. And I also need to have a good estimation of what the infrastructure cost is so I could know what my full pad price is and, and making sure that that price meets what we think the exit price could be. And that's just in today's numbers. These developments, they take a year or two. So, you know, you, you, don't, you don't know. So if I underwrite it, what is it going to matter in six months or three months even? That's going to be totally different. So for me, to, they're the ones I need to underwrite it. Their banks, just like the HELOCs, they, their banks are going to underwrite their new construction deals, and then they're going to land on those parameters. So for us to do that, it just doesn't make sense. It's just work that we don't need to do on our end. So we don't underwrite the deals. We market value price per pad, and we do infill, which is it could be attached or detached townhome-type communities and in cities, or we can do rural, which are like, you know, the 0.1.2 single family home subdivision pads. All right. And, and yeah, I was going to ask like how, how could somebody as a new investor get into land um, in that way? Because it sounds like there's a lot of what you already, you already have to have a really good base knowledge of what you're doing before you can get into this. Is there a way for newbies to start doing these land entitlements? Yeah. Well, you have to find a favorable market. So how do you do that? You see if there's area that's not rent controlled, that's development friendly, that has favorable neighborhood policies, favorable zoning, stuff like that. So finding your market and then making sure that there's enough absorption where if you build a hundred apartments that you can rent a hundred apartments or a thousand apartments or whatever, you know, so finding your market, talking to city planners and figuring out, you know, narrow down a few cities, go talk to city planners and see what they're wanting to do in their city. You're either going to get the city planners that drive you around and show you everything. You're going to get the ones that say, well, oh my God, here we go. Another one, you know? So you want, you want to make sure that you're in a, a favorable area. And then you just, 
put criteria of what you think the end buyers are doing. So if you look at an area, you see, well, who's building and what are they building? What are they selling it for? So if I look at, let's just pick a random Tampa, Florida, I'm going to maybe see good all homes here. And I'm like, oh, well, what did they pay for that? And how many did they get on that? And I'm going to see these guys here. So then I'm trying to model what they've already done. Okay, they're buying agriculture over 20 acres with, with, and they're not doing sewer. They're doing sewer main extensions. Cool. So we don't need to have sewer. So then you put your criteria together and then you kind of start doing the entitlement process. And then you call all those builders and, and you sell it to them. And that's, and that's on a large process, but you can do that with infill too. It's like a street, you see two builds going on, you know, you know, all those lots and those houses can be tear down to build two. So now you have, you know, in a small parameter and those are all different builders that are most likely buy your product or, or there's mixed use going on over here. Who's doing that? Cause when you get to those, those larger assets, there's only what, 10 buyers per deal. There's not, you don't have a million buyers. You have the buyer that knows the market there, who has their subs there, who runs their numbers there, who knows the codes there. So it's like there's not a massive amount of buyers for these really niche products. What's uh like, like I think I interrupted Josh there when he was like talking about like maybe giving an example of one deal. Oh, yeah, sure. So um, let's see. What was the – okay. So here's one I did a case study on. Um. It is a property in Nashville. It was two acres. I usually pull it up. Still have to think. It was like two acres, and it had. Um, they were going to do a car wash on it. It was two zonings. There was residential on the top, a street here, and then a street here where it had commercial here. That had an easement for a Dollar General, a stormwater pond, and then plans to build a car wash. So, on going after properties, this guy probably 10 times said that he wasn't interested in selling. And then one day he said he was, and then he didn't remember who I was, but I have my, the notes and everything from our conversation. So I knew exactly where to take the conversation. I pulled it up. And when he said yes to my price, I was like, really? I was like, is that for all, all both parts? At that time it was two parcels. He said, yes. So I was like, okay. So he immediately sent him a contract, got it under contract for a million bucks. So what we had to do here was figure out a lot of that easement with the dollar store. We had to split off the residential, subdivide those into lots, make utility easements to get into the property, turn the bottom into just commercial only, figure out the the easement issue. And then we started putting a site plan together. And I think we got like about 48, 45, 46 townhomes. So... We closed. So while we're doing that, of course, we closed pretty quick on that. And because we knew, like, I mean, it's a major road. It was just such a great deal. So then we, long story short, fixed all those encumbrances. And I just think we listed it for fun. Like I said, we just overpriced everything. I think for like 5.5 or whatever. And it just sat out there for a while. We didn't care because we don't, when we buy these, we, we came for 20 years, we're cool with it, right? We just, that's, we're doing this for the long run. Put it out there, had the concept, and it was it's nice because you can do either commercial, mixed use, or a mix of both. So we put a concept together with commercial and units in the front. Then we did all townhomes, and then we did all these different concepts that could help justify the value. So I got a random call one day from somebody that wanted the deal. That's somebody that I happen to know that we just sold another deal to down the street. So he already knows the product. It's just like, it's the, a really good buyer. 
So he landed up locking it up with us. And we went through a lot of encumbrances with fire, retaining walls, just like really had to, because their only contingencies, they wanted to have an approved site plan to see how many bills they could get on it. And we thought that from what they were paying, we felt like that was fair. So we went through the process along with them. We require our end buyers to join, either work with our engineer that already worked on the property or their engineer has to work with our engineer because there's only like one or two engineers in the whole couple zip codes that know the sewer that know these roads that know all the things like you can't you don't bring somebody new into this right you're having to pull sps and all these different plans from different prop neighboring properties either from years ago or now to try to map out like what what you have to deal with so that took that took maybe three or four months of due diligence and then so during that time we split only sold them the commercial we kept the residential so we landed up selling the commercial clothes for four four, and then we sold the single family lots for I think we got one seventy five a piece. They were just single family lots, but there's two missed opportunities. Number one, the person who bought our four single family lots is rezoning them and adding more density. We didn't think we can do that because of the neighborhood policy, but it looks like he's actually able to do it. So good for him. Whatever. I mean, we. I mean, 175 for our, a single panel pad is ridiculous anyway, so we're happy with that, right? And then the other missed opportunity was the guy next door. So these pads were STR eligible in our city, but there's a daycare next door. So that means in the first 50 feet, you cannot do STR. So we were talking to the neighbor too about buying his property and he had an operating business and it just, he wanted way too much. So the guy who bought it from us actually landed up working a deal with him anyway and bought the deal. So he put the assemblage together and now his value add is he can do all STR and then he can build on the other side. So it was a great win-win for him. Hmm. And, you know, it was a great win-win for us, but you know, would we have known to grab that one next door it would have been cool. And if I knew that we could have rezoned the four that we had and maybe get, maybe get more, I would have done that too. But it's like weighing out the time frame and the return. It's like, okay, it's like, you know, I could sit and wait for another hundred grand or fifty grand, or I could buy something else that makes me three times that in another deal, right? So it's like So how much um how much money does it cost to to do what you had? Because you said it was about three months of due diligence or four months, say say four months. Um, how much does it cost you to work with all these engineers and lawyers and wh- whatever you're dealing well, with? Well, it depends. So that could be how far it has to go in the process and what you have to do. Attorneys, I mean, they basically close our deals for us. They charge us a fee to, to they actually do all our, write up all our contracts and redline and send them back and do all that stuff. Um, then you've got your engineering and your civil and your hiring a civil engineer and a firm to help you get through rezoning. You can, we do it ourselves, but you can hire a firm. You got permit fees and stuff like that. So, but when we go under contract with someone, we are we are giving them – they're the ones that have to take all those invoices over now. So anything moving forward is on them. And then – so theoretically, if we have anything open, that they have to pay those as well. So we try to mitigate our risks that way. But any deal could cost any – I mean, it costs as little as 10 or 20 grand to get done, and it costs as much as three to 400 grand to get done, right? Depending on what okay. you have to do. So – 
So for this particular deal, let's just say it was 400 grand. It was, no, this was like um, a 10 grand one. This one, we didn't even have anything approved. Um, they, we, we okay. probably, I don't even think we got a survey. The old, the, so, and that's a great thing. The seller had a survey done. That's like everything we needed at the beginning. So we really didn't pay for that much. I don't think we paid probably more than, I mean, I have to look, but, you know, what more than 10 or 20 grand for that one. Well, so what? So what I just heard you say is you you made almost three million dollars for four months of headaches. Um, well, we owned it for a year too. For a year, okay. Yeah. For for a year of headaches. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. I'm seeing like um a um a fourteen thousand, a ten thousand, five thousand bill, five thousand four. Yeah. So maybe about thirty, forty grand, maybe. Wow, but still, like all all of that stuff you were saying at the beginning, I was like, wow, that sounds like so much work and a ton of headaches. But then when you when you break it down, like you made almost three million dollars for. For that many and headaches. that's exactly what the builders would, would don't want to do is the builders can't deal with those headaches. They need a pad ready, ready to go because their banks aren't going to wait. So, that, I mean, and, they, and you think they're headaches, but the, we, we kind of have a structure really well. Like we have a great relationship with our engineer who does a lot of the work for us that we pay them. One guy on my team, has, it just his job is to know the code and to get all the entitlements done. And it's like playing chess. It's like you do one thing and you wait, right? We, we, Pay the attorney for the quiet title. We wait 60 days, right? We submit our application for this and we wait. We have a meeting with the planning department and the TDOT or the roads and then you wait. So it's like, it's, it's like, I call it playing chess is what it is. It's like, I can either do a bunch of little deals or I can do like a few of these deals a year and, you know, yeah. reinvest that money and be a much quicker trajectory to you know financial freedom i think you're going to talk about stacked university or stacked oh, sure. investing yeah i'm, I'm stacked trying investing. <laughs> exactly stacked investing. Yeah. that's right yeah so stacked investing is the podcast uh stacked investing right. is kind of like my stacked capital brands and i have stacked university we just we basically teach agents how to become real estate investors and stacked okay. to me is like like I've been saying the whole time, it's multiple or like very small input for the maximum output, one to many. So how many how many times could you how many income strategies are in one deal? Now is that in the deal, you know, like for instance, this week um I funded a loan. So I lent the money, I get the interest on my money, I get my points for lending on the loan, and then as a real estate agent, I get the a listing agreement. So I get to sell the house, so I get the listing the points and the, so it's just like development. I get the wholesale fee and then I get the listings on the back end. So that could be a wholesale fee. It could be some listings on the back end. It could be a, where I actually give some money and lend toward the deal. And that'd be, it might be one. So it's like, how, what all could you do to maximize your, you're really maximizing, you're mitigating your risk and you're maximizing your, your returns by doing it like that. So just try to think of, you know, so I teach the different ways that we like, you know, what, what is, this is not a single family home. What are the 10 things you can do to this property? And what questions do you ask the seller to get to the best win-win? Right. Okay. And you teach all this in your stack. And we teach in stack university. university. Okay. Is that just for agents or do you have nurses that come through every once in a while? (laughs) So it could be really good for nurses. And so you have your, I like to say you have two different types of investors and I'm going to say easy words like active and passive. Your passive investors, like your lawyers, your doctors, your nurses, they don't have time to do all this due diligence and hunt these deals down. They just need their money to put somewhere. So that's a great way for 
someone to be passive. And yes, I can teach those passive strategies hundred percent. And then there's also the active strategy. Someone like me who's just likes to enjoys being in the field. I actually have the time, but that's why I get, I'm just not getting paid on my money. I'm getting equity because I'm bringing the deals and I'm happy to teach on that too. And nurses and other people, I know a lot of professionals and CPAs and nurses that will do this type of work and they land up leaving their job. So if you, if CPAs, if you don't love your job, I've seen so many people quit their jobs and then just do real safe full time. Nurses probably love their jobs and they, they love the people aspect of it, but it's nice to be able to do that where you want to do it and not that you have to do it. It's more, that becomes more of a passion project. And that's the, yeah, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Here is, and, and we mentioned earlier, like, you don't get wealthy as a nurse, so you're going to have to think of something else to do. And this is a great way to right. do it. Right. And, and nurses are special people. Have been. Like, I, I could never do what nurses mm-hmm. do. So I think nurses, I, I'm very thankful for nurses that are in that field that will do the things that I will, will, cannot <laughs> do. So, you know, I, it's, at the same time, you don't want to take them out of that position. But they they definitely need to be able to retire when they want and be able to feel good about it. All right, so we'll we'll jump to our final segment here, the final five. Um, first question is, what's a top financial resource that you found, whether you're a book, podcast, or where do you go to educate yourself about finances? Where do I go to educate myself about finances? Well, I guess I go to groups of people I know, go abundance, real estate investing groups, depending on what the topic is. But I think the best is just real life people in the field doing the work. You can Google whatever you want. It depends if it's something small or not, but I'd say generally people that I know. Yeah. And uh, number two is uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Advice I would give my younger self probably be to grow my risk tolerance younger and not have passed on so many deals until I learned the uncomfortableness of taking risk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, risk tolerance is a it huge is, one. It is, because I've never done anything like this before. And like, even if you're a kid and you can like sell baseball cards and stuff, that still gives you something, right? So it's like you build your risk tolerance <laughs> and that degree. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for your first deal, I guess. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. All right, number three, what, what are you trying to accomplish in 2024? Trying to accomplish in 2024, it would be nice to have about 500 units to go through the pipeline this year. And that's our biggest goal for development is, is the 500, 500 units. Yeah. So you're doing these land entitlements based on that. You're getting the land and then retitling for 500 units. Oh, yeah. It could be one deal for 50. Um, right now our criteria is anything that could yield a hundred units or more. So that would be five deals oh. theoretically at a hundred units, but that's not to say like we have quite a few already, but 500 new would be fantastic. Cool. So number four is if we if you were to tell people to do one thing, uh, what would that thing be? If I were to tell people to do one thing, what would that thing be? Be as humble as possible and act like you don't know anything. Be the sponge to learn and ask questions. Yeah, that, that's powerful, power, powerful right there. I know a lot of people, they, they enjoy educating people. And if if you've already heard something, just act like you haven't heard it before, because as soon as you act like you already know it, they're, they're not going to give you any, any more advice or any more education that you probably. Well, there's need. hundreds and thousands of perspectives. Yeah. And I think just like people want to come in and look confident. So they appear a certain way to make themselves look better. But it's like, yeah, if you just show up humble, ready to learn, like I feel like that goes so far. Yeah. You've got the guy, you got the guy that walks into the, the networking event, like, 
like this kind of knows everybody. And then you got the guy that just like, Hey, you know, asking questions instead of like, here I am. It's like, who are you? Absolutely. And I, well, I think Greg, I think you're a great example to that too. Cause at the beginning of the podcast, you're like, I don't know everything, but then after this last hour, we were hearing everything that you've done. <laughs> Sounds like you do know everything. <laughs> Sounds like you know everything. Well, I don't know everything, but I, I could talk about <laughs> yeah. those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that, that's great. Okay, last one is, what's the biggest financial mistake that you've made? <laughs> biggest financial mistake I've made in the short story is I didn't make sure a business partner was clear on an operating agreement. So a company that I had an operating agreement with, with building houses that I lent on that I got paid out of for a certain equity stake in the next partnership didn't get conveyed. It was my fault. Definitely my fault. I didn't make sure we were clear and people came to me like, are you guys good? And I made, I thought we were, but it was very early on in my career and I was supposed to get a partnership stake and this and that. And it turned out that that didn't happen. And that was a big, massive six figure mistake. Um, and the person who was in the other partnership was a great friend of mine, even still, he truly didn't know about it. And it's like, you know, the end of the fourth quarter of the project. And he's got a, now has this massive equity bill that he didn't know about after like, he's already run the numbers. He did all these things and it was just, it was unfortunate, but um, we definitely put that bridge underneath this as a learning experience for sure. I mean, that was, at least I didn't theoretically lose money, but it was definitely a big financial mistake. And then even the daycare I talked about, that was a great financial mistake too. I think I paid like three or 4 million bucks for it. I could have made another million bucks. But that's that's what when we talk about. I dropped out of college, but I just paid a million bucks. That's a hundred one point one in my education, right there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an expensive university, even by today's standards. Yeah, <laughs> right. My yeah. Point. yeah. So where uh, where can people uh, find you? Where where are you on uh, social media or anything? Yeah, I'm on all all the things. I mean, there's there's I'm Greg Faricelli. You're not going to find another one. So if you Google my name, Greg Faricelli you will definitely find everything you can on me and I'm easy to easy to get a hold of and love to look at any deals. I love to invest in any deals, syndications, apartment buildings, multifamily, land, anything like that. <laughs> All the things. Good. Can they can people find about find out about your university through your name or do you have a website? Oh yeah, um, that website would be stackeduniversity.com. Cool. Yep. So and, we do I think good. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I, th I thought you mentioned that like you guys help people get their first deal as well, right? Yeah, that's the goal. The The perfect avatar is somebody who already kind of knows real estate because this goes pretty advanced pretty quick, but we can't start from the beginning. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate this. Thanks for th thanks for the time and all the education and thanks for not not knowing everything, but then telling us. <laughs> 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 awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yes. Take care, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Investing RN. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to share this episode with one other person and follow us on Instagram at investingrn.co if you have any other questions or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Your input is super valuable and we love hearing from our listeners. Until next time, remember, your financial well-being is a journey and we're here to guide you every step of the way. Keep investing in yourself and your future.